0: In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 12 through chapter 5. The Israelites went to battle against the Philistines and brought the Ark of the Covenant with them. In the skirmish, the Ark was captured and the sons of Eli died in battle. In this chapter, the news of the battle and the death of Hophni and Phinehas reach Eli as well as Phineas's pregnant wife. God then continues to exercise His judgment against Eli's family, as we'll see. Meanwhile, in Philistine country, where the ark was taken, Yahweh gets glory over the false god Dagon, and he punishes the Philistines with tumors. Good morning and blessed tide! Today is Tuesday, May 2nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Many thanks to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online at lhfmissions.org to learn more about their translating and publishing work. Well, now, please join me in welcoming my guest for this morning to help us explore the second half of Samuel chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. It's the Reverend Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Kaiba Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Parviz, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Pastor Bowie. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Can't complain. How has right. life been treating you this Eastertide? Um, I am the
1: same. I I can't complain. I'm
0: doing well. <laughs> well here, well here in I don't know how it is down there in St. Louis, but here in Minnesota, we are finally getting some warmer weather. Although in our little neck of the woods, there's a lot of wind, so we can't really enjoy it just yet. But uh, love the love the warmer weather. So happy that things are starting. It just makes me feel better, and I'm sure I'm sure it does you too.
1: Yeah, we're having a lot of wind as well. So I. Uh... I'm headed out later this week to northern Michigan, so I'm looking for colder weather. So we'll see what happens.
0: Oh, no. Okay. Well, yeah, you'll have to see. Well, I'll tell you what. uh, Before we dive in, I'd love to start uh, our time together in prayer. And as always, I'd like to invite you to do that. You bet. Thank you.
1: Abba Father, thank you for this day, and uh, yes, even when, that gives us such uh, joy, at least to our sights, uh, to see all the trees swaying and dancing to your praise. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to uh, show us your glory, and uh, protect us from our sinful selves, and help us always to give glory to you, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, brother, we are really starting in the middle of chapter four. It's just dividing it up to kind of make it a little even. Um, So we're very much, even as we go through chapter five, in the middle of an account of this battle, uh, maybe before we start with uh, chapter five, for verse 12, it might be a good idea to catch everybody up. So where have we been um, in this recent uh, situation before we go where we're going?
1: Well, you just gave a wonderful summary of the whole the whole morning here. But um, yeah, so we have Eli and Samuel, and uh, Eli was a good priest, but his sons uh, Phineas and Hophni were pretty awful priests. And because of them as well, the way they're leading with the leading Israel as well as the people themselves, they are um, they are doing what I prayed against. They're living and, and uh, just sort of encouraging their own sinful natures. And God is not going to allow that, his people, to, uh, to prosper when that happens. And uh, so we have this big battle, and God, you know, I, I always think the language is wonderful because... You know, when the Philistines are fighting against Israel, they wonder how they're fighting against God. And when Israel loses, you know, why is God fighting against them? They know what the shtick is here, right? So uh, God is chastising his people, and yet the Philistines are not going to uh, reap the reward either. So...
0: No, they certainly don't. So everybody is on the wrong, as is often the case in these narratives. You know, nobody is doing the right things, Uh, but we are going to see how it plays out in the the next chapter. So we're going to begin with chapter 4, verse 12, and I'm just going to read it and then we'll get back to the discussion. So here we go. Um, We are starting with uh, the death of Eli. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came to the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came to Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. That's verse eighteen. We're going to stop right there. So we have this uh, we have this messenger. He, he's fleeing from the battlefield. Uh, I guess I'm 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 finding this cosmically amusing only in the sense that he fled. He gets to Eli, and he says. I came from the battlefield, I fled, and Eli goes, well, how did it go, my son? And it's like, yeah. well, I'm, I'm running away. How do you think it's going? Uh, but anyway, starting at the starting at the top, um, the people are lamenting. Uh, but Eli, he's upset because of the Ark. Uh, he doesn't know that it's been captured. Uh, am I assuming correctly that you know a lot of his upsetness is coming from the fact that He's not on board with them dragging the ark out ark out to battle it's not proper
1: and and in some sense and I you know we can't argue this necessarily from the text but uh, Eli having been at least for most of his life although he really failed as a father I have to say but having uh, having served for most of his life as a relatively faithful priest of Israel and service to the ark I think that there are I, I sometimes get the sense in here that Eli can feel in his spirit that something is wrong. Uh, you know, he wasn't fond of the idea of taking the Ark of the Covenant out into the battle in the first place. And I think when it says he's fearing for the Ark, uh, trembling for the Ark of God, um, his heart trembled. And I just get a sense that he he has a sense that something has something terrible has happened. And, uh, and of course, I'm always brought up short here because, you know, I'm old and heavy. And, you know, here we have poor, <laughs> poor Eli just falling over backward from his seat and dying, breaking his neck. That's a pretty graphic illustration there.
0: It is graphic. But one thing that stands out to me, aside from the being old and heavy, which I noticed that, too, is the fact that it, it, it isn't, he says, your two sons are dead and the ark has been captured, and then it says, as soon as he mentioned the ark, Eli fell over backwards. Again, not reading too much into it, it's almost as if his concern was even more for the ark than his sons.
1: Well, I mean, he, he had already chastised his sons and told them that they were going to bring doom upon Israel because of their behavior. I mean, certainly a father loves his sons no matter what, but his loyalty and his fealty, if you will, was to God, and and the ark was the the presence of God in that place that has been taken.
0: Well, and we have this judgment that God had foretold would happen, or, you know, that God had told Samuel anyway, and this is all coming to pass, right? Judgment day has come. The two sons are dead, so now Eli, he literally, when he falls over, his fall is very symbolic and representative of, of the fall of his family. You know, he, he, he is now um, tumbling over uh, and, and he will die. And I think it's interesting because when we're first reading it, I almost think the reader is expecting him to have had some sort of heart attack because of the way he's mentioning these things. Um, so when his neck is broken, that's a little bit of a surprise. Um, and of course, the old and heavy thing is always interesting. So I, I really see this as being God's um, judgment coming to pass against Eli.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting that his neck was broken, and, and I cannot help but but bring to mind, you know, Moses's admonition that we are a stiff-necked people, and you know we set our neck against God. And God won't even take that. And then, of course, we have these last words, which not only is it symbolic of the end of Eli's family, but it is physically the end of Eli's ministry. He had judged Israel 40 years, that 40 again, there being sort of a completion number of his ministry. It is done.
0: One thing I think is interesting, too, is that this is right here, the last mention of Shiloh, in uh, Samuel, first and second Samuel, I mean, it gets brought up again briefly, but not in a contextual way that says it's still around. So uh, right. there's some suggestion here that Shiloh is in the being destroyed by the Philistines with the battles that are raging on now is is that something that uh, that you would hold to? I mean,
1: very likely. I mean, obviously, we know. Well, we're going to read the rest
0: of this chapter, so or
1: the rest of this text, mm-hmm. but uh, and we're going to get to what happens with the ark. But the ark and, and Shiloh was the place, and Shiloh obviously comes from the Hebrew for shalom, which is the peace, uh, you know, the peace that God gives. Peace is over.
0: Right, peace is, the peace is over, and, and we're, we're seeing God's judgment uh, going out against well Eli and his sons. Um, yeah, let's, let's read a little bit more in the text, because it's not quite over. This is going to be verses 19 through 22. It's the rest of chapter 4.
1: Yeah, the rest now of his, the family.
0: Right, so now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Um, yeah, you know, a very interesting situation here, because her child um, is a continuation of the line, she succumbs to her childbirth uh and so now we have more dead people and it's um it it's it's weighty it's 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 graphic it's 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 an interesting um play of events. take us through them a little
1: bit i I just think this is the 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 finish of Eli's line basically although Ichabod apparently lives through this and we uh we can go on to that if we want to, although I don't know how much evidence there is for that. But she uh it's it's strange that she dies as well. I mean the the anxiety that the capture of the ark and you know, perhaps the death of her father in law and her husband also, but it was just too much and, and she she dies and that's a it's a it's it's almost the end of this line coming to a conclusion here. With Ichabod, who is the you know, as is often the case in in uh, these prophetic kind of utterances, these children are named as prophecies, and you know, a prophecy here is that God, the glory of God, has departed, um, and it, that's a pretty final statement. It's not. I mean, it's 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 odd that. And I suppose it's not, although we know that God is not located in the Ark of the Covenant. that the Ark of the Covenant is merely the, essentially the altar upon which the people worship the one true God. But that Ark leaving is also the symbol of God removing his blessing from his people. It's as if the Shekinah sure. in the tabernacle has been... Has just right. disappeared. He's no longer present among the people,
0: which of course is very important, and it's all as a result of the people's improper worship of God. You know, they they took him out there. Him, I'm saying it's like a hymn— but they took the Ark of the Covenant out there like it was a, a you know a, a, a totem. It was a a good luck symbol. It was they they thought that they uh, would win because of it.
1: It's an idol to them, isn't it?
0: Right. Right. And it's hard so not it's this in worship. It's hard not to
1: see how Raiders of the Lost Ark got their storyline right out of this, this particular mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. You know, the Nazis are looking for that covenant, that ark, because they want that idol to go before them to win their war. And then of course all the bad things that happen with that happen here in the Philistines too.
0: Well, and we have here, even when she is at her at her at her demise, and they're telling her, "You know it's good news, you've born a son, and Ichabod's going to show up again in chapter 14, yeah. but she it says she does not answer or pay attention, But then it says she named the child Ichabod, and then she says a couple of things, so I'm assuming that means that she just didn't pay any attention or answer them, but she's still speaking. But right. even when she is lamenting that the glory has departed from Israel, she uh she mentions the ark first before she mentions yeah, she, even the death of her father-in-law and her husband. What she is ignoring is the apparent uh, um,
1: faith in in redemption or the joy that the the I guess the maidservants or the the What's the word that's called? I forget, the doulas. I don't know, but she's, right. she's ignoring the fact that this is something to rejoice over.
0: Yeah, how does this fit in, though, with the idea that God's supposed to put an end to the line of Eli, but doesn't Ichabod represent the continuation of that line? And, and later, he's still, you know, his brother's going to be serving in the temple, at least, and some other things, yeah, so— yeah. How does that fit in with this fulfillment of God's prophecy?
1: I mean, so Ichabod is going to be an an always reminder of the departure of God's glory. That's the purpose of her naming him that, right? and so even even with even with the future line, it's always going to be synonymous of this is the line in which God's glory had departed.
0: Okay, I see sure. And and I, I don't want to go back too much, but I was just thinking too again about the old and heavy. Sorry to bring it back up, but you know, the, the Hebrew word Kaved there is talking about someone who's also important um or right. oppressive. And I think yeah. that's interesting too because this is the downfall. You know, speaking of Ichabod and representing how the glory had departed, the glory is departing because of the um the the way that Eli and his sons were were treating the house of God and treating the people. You know, Eli, as you mentioned earlier, you know, he had some failures. It's certainly not as bad as his sons, but he definitely had a failure to act, a failure to rein in his sons. He could have removed them. So here we have him being weighty in all kinds of ways. You know, yes, certainly he was important and they were important. He was oppressive in some ways, of course he also seems to be overweight but that overweightness also points to the fact that you know what kind of uh what kind of food is he having well he's having the fatty sacrificial meat you know they're being it's being pulled out for him and his sons uh before it's properly uh, sacrificed to the lord and so now we have all that weight kind of coming down upon his neck which his neck is broken and then we see here ichabod remains and as you said it's this eternal reminder his mother passes to. I think we're going to see some of those same elements coming up next, so that's why I wanted to highlight them. Uh, anything else was, in this part of the chapter? Go ahead.
1: Well, what's, you know, the, I think there's a sort of an ironic twist here as well, because the glory of God is often characterized throughout the Scriptures as heavy, as weighty, right? Uh, it, it descends and, it, and it's and it has weight, and so the glory departs, and Phineas's weight kills him. So there's, a, I think, there's an interesting ironic twist in that as well.
0: Oh, I absolutely agree, absolutely. Uh, anything else before we move on? Uh, nope. All right, here we go. So I we're going to move on to the next section, which is Chapter Five. So uh, we're going to read the first five verses of Chapter Five. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place when they rose the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of Yahweh, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So um, a couple of things stand out to me. One, we literally have this false god who is nothing bowing down in a sense being forced to bow down in front of the altar uh, in, in front of the ark pardon me but we also see his neck being broken so lots of uh lots of connections and ironic imagery bringing us even back to god's judgment on Eli
1: and you know obviously this is a statue that they they they've built as a as an idol and um I think because of this text I've seen representations of Dagon and he always has his hands out and and it's to receive their sacrifice. Now I don't you know, I often wonder because in Dagon as well as in Molech there was an element of human sacrifice where you laid you laid the, the child or whoever it is on the arms of the of the idol and God will have none of that in his presence.
0: Of course, you know, and so now we have his hands literally being broken, right? So that's God's judgment against their false worship, judgment against their false God. Um, And and I described it earlier as God getting glory for Dagon because, well, it reminds me a lot of how God got glory over the gods of Egypt. And, you know, again, that doesn't mean these gods are anything, uh, but God shows that he is the one with true power whereas this this idol this statue is nothing.
1: And, uh, and what's interesting is the Philistines' perspective on this because they they stick the ark of god into a place where Dagon is almost in here's our sta- our idol room. They've made they've basically considered the ark of god another idol to throw it there as this as a an, uh, another idol perhaps or even an offering to Dagon. And uh, and this 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 is this is what occurs from that, and this falling face down that kind of prostrates before the God of Israel and and later the Philistines will refer to the God of Israel as gods, plural because they're very pluralistic. They have this multiple gods in their in their um, worship. Uh, but here we have uh, the one God and the this, this statue just falling prostrate before him.
0: Well, and I, I do love that imagery. It's You know, here he is. They have brought this ark in, which represents the throne of the God of the Jews, of the Israelites. And then they bring him in, and it's like—and this is how I perceive it. It's like he's now having to serve. He's at the— Foot of their god, he is now subservient to their god, and then, as you said, their god literally, uh, uh, while they're not there, uh, forms a posture of worship. He, he, he falls down before them. But I think what's even what's even more striking is then it says, "So they took Dagon and put him back in his place." That sentence alone is uh, humorous in the sense that their God has so little power. He can't even move on his own because he has no power. He's nothing. So they have to literally move their God and put him back into place. Um, And of course it happens again. And, and we see now the second time it's even worse, you know, his, his, uh, his neck was cut off and, and this judgment against Dagon then recalls the faith that Eli had done. And so, I think we see the outsiders around God, around the Israelites, seeing God acting, seeing Yahweh acting. And, of course, they're going to sort of put him on their shelf with the rest of their gods because this is a pretty powerful God compared to their own. Um, and, And that's what we see, I think, taking place here in a very symbolic way and a very literal way.
1: Clearly, they know the story of the Exodus. And and you know one has to wonder if the first time they didn't think, well, he just fell over, so we'll set him back up. And then the next right. day it was like, no, he didn't just fall over. And the hands that would have received their tribute are on the. Th- now I think on the threshold is an interesting thing because, you know, in one hand, in one sense, this reminds me a little bit. And and please, you know, humor me here for a second. Sure, when go for it. John, Peter, are at the tomb. And they look in, and Peter goes in, and the the, the headpiece is folded and off to the left. And that it says, when they saw that, they believed. And, of course, we can talk about what they believed. But it was not as if, you know, somebody just took the body and left the, the grave clothes there, and they were just, you know, left behind. Somebody was very particular. And the ark of God was—God himself was very particular. He— he didn't just fall over. I'm cutting off the hands that you, that you make tribute to and his head, and I'm putting him on the threshold where you enter this, this vile place.
0: Right, exactly, there's, exactly.
1: There's intentionality about that, that that is no longer accidental. He couldn't have just fallen over and they broke off, and they were just laying scattered around. They were moved to the threshold.
0: Right. And it, so much did it strike them that it changed their worship practices. You know, verse yeah. five, this is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. This particular temple, it sounds like, now they, I, I don't know what that looks like. They they go around it. They step, I mean, it's hard to go around it, I suppose. So They step over it very carefully. They don't actually touch it. Um, what What a wild way. You always wonder how different, customs start even in a church, and, and here we have this custom because it's teaching the next generation what had happened, and that's why they had that custom, uh, something we yeah. can appreciate a little bit too, I think. Yep. Well, anything else we, can... we want to add to the conversation before we head to break?
1: Oh, is it that time? Sure. Um No, I think—I right. just think we need to— uh we need to contemplate on the intentionality of God here, both against Israel and against the Philistines, as we're intentional about going to break.
0: As we are intentional about going to break. That's what we're going to do right now. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Parvise and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 5. We'll see you on the other side. back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boob. With me this morning is the Reverend Kevin Parvis, Pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm so grateful that you've joined us this morning, whether you're coming to us live on the air or on demand at KFUO or as a podcast. If you enjoy listening to Thy Strong Word, would you be so kind as to share your love of the show with your friends and family? And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just drop by and say hello. I'm so encouraged that you tune in and grow in faith with me and my guests each weekday. So thank you for listening. Well, now pastor Parvis before the break, we had just started the part uh, of chapter five, where God is starting to get glory over the false God Dagon of the Philistines. Um, But now he's going to start doing something that affects the people themselves. We're going to start with verse 6, and we're going to go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. So verse 6 through 12. The hand of Yahweh was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there after they had brought it around, the hand of Yahweh was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, "...send away the ark of the God of Israel, let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven." So, the hand of Yahweh was heavy against the people. He afflicted them with tumors. Um, that's uh, it's it's definitely a shift, right? We have him uh, supernaturally uh, causing uh, the god Dagon statue or whatever this giant idol is to fall and crash down into pieces, at least his hands and his neck. And now he's afflicting the people themselves with tumors. Uh, take us through what's going on.
1: And, and again, you have that heavy imagery of God's glory, getting his glory, getting it's coming down in a, in a very negative way. Uh, And it's heavy here as well. Uh, And, you know, I just think this is, you know, again, this is where they they get this uh, business with uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, um, you know, and and so they posited that. And I've actually read in this, uh, you know, when I was an unbeliever early in my life, uh, I studied the whole Eric von Daniken mythos. Uh, and, you know, he was positing that the Ark of the Covenant was some kind of nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm, and right. it's just because the reality is you don't need plutonium to get tumors. You can do, God can do that all by himself. And I don't know if it's, you know, it's not the Ark of the Covenant necessarily, although we will see later the, the, the things that happen with the Ark of the Covenant. But this, the, what is the Ark of the Covenant a symbol of? What is inside of that? you've got the the 10 commandments you've got a jar full of manna you've got a staff that bloomed i mean these are the symbols of god's glory over egypt and over and his provision for his people the ark of the covenant is the place where you know we as human beings uh, in the exodus uh, came and god's glory was present when it was present and and so it has become, it's, it's easy to understand why it would become not only an idol, but now with the Philistines, something to fear. Because in its presence, where they are mistreating it and, and misunderstanding what, who this God of Israel is, uh, they're getting sick. They're getting these tumors. And, and that gets a little weird over in chapter 6, but... Um, now, they're, they're suffering in the presence of God, and they're not recognizing it. They're just talking about the ark. Move that ark, and we'll be fine. And when the where the ark goes, the people are sick. But it doesn't really say that when the ark leaves, they're healed either
0: well and they're definitely giving credit in the wrong direction right as you're as you're pointing yeah. out it's not the arc itself you know von Daniken, i'm familiar with all of that stuff too uh i just yeah. have a a strange fascination with the way people will will create some uh, convincing sounding but clearly dubious uh retreads of history and, and that whole stuff is definitely one of them. But this idea that, yeah, that's some sort of nuclear thing or it, it has some sort of power in and of itself to cause people to get sick um, is really trying to strip from God his power. And, and that's what they're doing, too, though. Right. They don't. They ser- Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: So, I mean, it, It's cementing the idea that they consider this ark just to be an idol. The Ark is God Himself, not God, but the Ark, right? right just as they right. got power, this little statue whose hands and head are cut off, um, this Ark has power. When it's not, you know, the statues are just man-made things that have no power. It's the it's the it's God behind it.
0: You know, one of the things that when we talk about ancient history and we talk about the Old Testament and we're, you know, we're talking about Dagon and the Philistines and the Israelites and Yahweh and the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes people will say, you know, that's great, Pastor, but gosh, what's this have to do with us today? (laughs) What would be your response, right? What can we take away from this today that helps us appreciate our God for who he is?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we as human beings always have a tendency to want to focus our worship on something we can control, and that's what this is appropriate to do. Is, is we don't want to make idols out of things that are just human creations, and uh, and we can do that, you know, four leaf clovers, all kinds of stupid things that are in, in our in human mythology. And we give things power, you know, we give, and that that's not what we need to focus our attention on, the one who is the power, and that is only the only God. I mean, I, you know, I always struggle with the language of that he is God among gods. Uh, it gives us the impression that there's a pantheon of gods. But no, that just means that he is the only true God among all the things that we have made gods throughout our life.
0: Right, that takes us back to Luther's definition of you know a God is whatever you put your faith, hope, and trust in, so you're absolutely right. I mean, God of God's is simply saying that there is a God over and above all the gods that we create for ourselves and and I think that's also difficult when we talk about things like Dagon because you have two different perspectives here: you have the the philistines and and I've always wondered, and this was the same with the Egyptians and the other you know Canaanite deities. Do the people really believe that these statues or these thrones represent the um, gods? Do they believe that the physical items themselves are divine even though they know how they were made? Or or do they kind are they in on it? Do they kind of know, well, this this really isn't anything, but this is our practice. And and I bring that up because when Yahweh comes on the scene, the god of gods, so to speak as you were saying. Then then it's a uh, it's clear that he has real power whereas theirs do not. And so today we face that same thing. We put all our faith, hope and trust in so many different gods, so to speak, that do not have power. And we neglect the proper worship of our one true God, which is sort of what's behind all the things that are going on here.
1: And, and I think you're absolutely right that in the creation of idols, I would venture to guess the idol creators, as well as the priesthood that forms around the idol, are in on it, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that you know, this is this serves their cult. Practices, right? We see that in the New Testament where Paul goes to uh, to Mars Hill and sees all the uh, other gods. There, there's it's like a it's like a flea market of gods there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's just so ludicrous that that. But I do think the people who the priesthood of of these cultic pra- practices are. Um, Li- the people who are listening to these priests are believing these gods have power. And uh, I think that's a challenge because uh, in the church, even sometimes uh, we, the priesthood can tell the people things that they believe that are totally wrong. Um, right. And and I think we always have to, That that's the beauty of what Luther, what Luther gave, you know, it's also, yes, the source of all the, denominational discord but the, the the ability to read the scriptures for ourselves and hear the living word without getting it uh, translated for us through some priest or some rabbi or even god forbid some pastor uh, god wants us to know him individually he gives us these people to serve us but they're not to serve us in deceit and we can test those things and 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 guard our hearts against that stuff by learning his word. And that's what's so important about shows like yours.
0: Well, you know, and I really like what you brought up, because first of all, that is one of the accusations of Luther, right? He didn't uh, get rid of the pope. He created a thousand little popes. And, and there is some yeah. truth to that being the result of putting the the Bible into the common language of the people and that sort of thing. But as you pointed out, God wants us to be in the word. Because the, your, I think your average atheist or militant atheist or someone who doesn't like Christianity, they're going to accuse people like you and me of being just like the idol creators. Like we're in on it. We all yeah. know it's fake, but this is how we make our living, and of course we're all rich like Joel Osteen and stuff, which isn't true. Oh, yeah, yeah. But but the point is um, that the reason why that argument falls apart is because we – if, if I once saw a post online, and of course that's a source of all kinds of arguments, but they said, you know, if the people only read the Bible for themselves, they would know how how manipulative their pastors are. Now, I'm not saying there aren't manipulative pastors, but I just had to chuckle. If that were true, then why am I always encouraging my people to read the Bible? Right? We want our people to be in the Bible. We want our people to come to us, hopefully in respectful ways, and say, hey, you know what? I don't know if you're Teaching this right or interpreting it right. You know, we, we we all have to put ourselves under the authority of God's word, not under the authority of, well, you know, I I'm the pastor or something like that. So yeah, you do it. I think that's what separates us from the uh, the people who are in on it, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Uh, and and you know, of course the challenge of everybody reading the scripture for themselves is their own preconceptions, their own I mean, that's why we have hermeneutical laws, you know, rules for which to interpret the Scriptures by it. It's important that we as pastors teach people how to, how to read the Scriptures uh, because we can get our own harebrained ideas when, when, you know, I've often said I can prove there is no God from the Scriptures if you let me. Um, yeah, so, you know, the whole purpose, the whole process of reading the Scriptures for ourselves is really important, but we need to learn how to do that as well.
0: Right, there is there are proper ways to read the scriptures and improper ways, and you know. And another thing too, it sort of brings it up to since this whole situation is about false worship, or at least in part over the false worship, they were taking the ark of the covenant out into the field when they shouldn't be. Eli uh, and even especially his sons, though even more than him, were not being proper priests. So that's sort of part of the message that we're getting today is that we have to beware of following after our own dagon's, but we also have to beware of not worshiping gods in ways that he hasn't called us to, and I think that includes being in the Word. There's a proper way and an improper way to read the Word, um, and if you think, for instance, the the Lutheran confessions, the Lutheran um, flavor of the faith, so to speak, uh, the way Lutherans uh, uh, read the Word isn't correct, um, then I guess that makes sense. Nobody can stop you from being wrong, uh, but but what I don't like is when then people still join, say, the Lutheran Church, and they try to change that from the inside. Instead of putting themselves yeah. under the authority of the Scriptures, they want to try to cause dissension within the Church. But going back to Luther, there's a thousand little popes out there. You could probably find what you're looking for without trying to destroy the Church. So it's it is, it is tough. You want to be on the guard for false prophets. You want to be in the Word. But you have to be in the word honestly,
1: yeah and listening to what God is asking is is saying to us rather than what we want God to say to others, and exactly. that's often i mean the the I don't think there are many many pastors in mainline denominations, not, not even pastors but many churches in mainline denominations who are abusing the word of God much like phineas and and uh Huffney were uh, there's no difference there, and and I, and I you know they were they were prophesying for their own purposes.
0: Yes, they absolutely were, and they were feasting on the the fatted meat. And I, I would say the modern day equivalent would be, um, you know, misusing church funds and donations and property and that sort of stuff for their own. Basically, taking what is rightfully God's and using it for their own selves.
1: Or or whatever, whatever the current social mores are demanding.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah,
1: and that's always the challenge. We read the scriptures for what God has to say to us, not for what we want Him to say.
0: So you know, this is taking us a step back. But I, I glanced down here at my notes and. I made a note about the tumors. Now, uh, you know, we, we have here, there are, I guess the Hebrew, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess the Hebrew here really is is leaning on just this idea of welts or, or things that are inflamed. And so uh, some people have interpreted tumors as being hemorrhoids, which I guess in our parlance might be a little bit more humiliating for the people. Uh but some people of course are dying of these things. Uh tumors lends itself to the idea of the Von Daniken nuclear theory, but it uh right. I think the hemorrhoids bring in a whole new aspect of it. Did you look into that at all?
1: I I've heard that and I've often you know, there are times when actually it becomes uh fairly clear that uh that these these things do happen. But I get the sense that people are these are tumors that people can see uh, because they're going to so, make idols out of them here in the next chapter.
0: I mean, um, you're right. You're right. That's no. That makes sense. That makes sense.
1: And so I don't know if anybody's gazing up my tuchus to check out the tumors. <laughs> that, you know, I, I wouldn't be comfortable with that, but. <laughs>
0: Well you're right because we won't get there today of course but in the next chapter which we'll be covering tomorrow they actually yeah they make golden objects in the shape of these tumors or hemorrhoids or whatever they are that would be very uh very odd uh, the Jewish historian Josephus Actually, thought that the affliction of the Philistines was dysentery, which is an interesting interpretation. Uh-huh. I'm not sure how adventure. he gets that, and I certainly don't know how you make a golden idol out of dysentery. So that uh, that, that in itself uh, is odd.
1: Yeah, uh, later yeah. on,
0: too, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but later on, in addition to making these golden tumors, which they're providing to the Israelites as I guess an offering for their guilt, they also make rats. So there is some there is some speculation that if the rats are involved, then maybe God is using a natural means to punish these people, and perhaps it's the bubonic plague or something similar.
1: Black plague or something like that, because there is this the whole mice thing or rats, as you should put it. I don't know. The whole, the Philistines' response to all this is certainly bizarre, if you ask me. But then Israel's response is just as bizarre. But we always have to remember that there's still a prophet in Israel. Samuel is still around.
0: Well, that's right. That's right. You know, so they, they're bringing it around town. They're having all this deadly panic. The, the hand of God is heavy there. There we're hearing that word heavy heavy again you know we, we brought it back earlier and that's why i wanted to illustrate it before the break is that you know samuel was heavy you know big fat guy eating all the fatty meats but he was also um heavy in importance heavy in oppression and then because of his heaviness god had uh judged him then the giant heavy god dagon the statue is is toppled by our god and now God is continuing to be heavy or, or have a heavy hand against the people by punishing them. Uh, what ultimately is the point here? What, what ultimately is God accomplishing for both the Philistines and the Israelites? Um, and, you know, I guess as we're getting towards the end of the show, we have about eight minutes left. Um, how can we take this and apply it to our lives today?
1: Well, you know, again, I go back to Eli, his heart trembling about the ark, even though it's not in his presence, he's just worried about it, right? Uh, he's worried about the consequences, he's worried, he know, You know, I think God makes his presence known if we can only feel it, If we if we look for it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have, I mean, our sanctuary is just a room Four walls, a ceiling, chairs, furniture—it is just a room. It's like my living room. If I go into my living room, however, I don't feel the same way that I feel when I'm sitting in the sanctuary by myself, even with with the rest of the people around me. There, it just there is, and God is just as present with me in my living room as He is in the sanctuary, and yet. He makes himself known in different ways. And so, you know, I, I often wonder in the case of the, the, the lords of the Philistines, what they had against Gath and Akron. You know, the Ashdod is falling under disease, so let's send this thing to some of our other cities and let's see what happens there. Um, that's, you know, God is God is making his presence known to the lords of the Philistines, He's made his presence known to the Israelites by removing the glory from them, allowing them to see the defeat that they have without him. But he wants us to know he's there. And that that heaviness, that even when the glory of God descends upon us, it's, it's a weighty thing that we know is there, even if we can't define it all the time.
0: Well, one of the things that we know is that the Ark of the Covenant, you know, Represents or is is usually in the holy of holies. So God's presence is there in the tabernacle. We know that God's presence is with us today because He's told us that He comes to us in His Word and sacrament in very objective ways. And so I make a little bit, and I hope it's not too much of a leap of a connection between the misuse of the sacrament as Paul was describing in in Corinthians, um, and people who were dying and falling ill and being sick because of their misuse of the Lord's Supper, and here it's also about God's presence—this case, God's presence that accompanied the the holy things of worship—and now he's making his presence known in judgmental ways against those who are misusing them. I think there's definitely a connection there.
1: Yeah, and, and that's one thing God is good at, is making himself known. We might try to Ignore him, but he makes himself known, and his 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 presence is heavy.
0: Well, that makes sense uh what else do we see here before we're almost we just have a few minutes left, so i'm gonna give you the the final words
1: well you know i find i guess if we're gonna have the final words i i guess uh i wanna finish with the end of chapter five because this is kind of interesting. Uh, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. This is Ekron by now. And the hand of God was very heavy there. And so we, we, we've talked about that heaviness. And it says, The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The cry of the city went up to heaven. And that strikes me as the, the uh, again, we're back to the Exodus God heard the cries of his people in in uh, Egypt, and he answered their cries. The cries of the city of Ekron, the cries of the cities of the Philistines went up to heavens. How did God receive those? And I think that's uh, something that's really struck, because when we cry out to God for something, is it to fix, to, to, to heal us without a bending of the knee to the God who can do that. Uh, and I think that's, uh, and it, you know, I always find out in, in natural disasters, people who would not otherwise ever think about God are suddenly praying and crying out to God. Um, God makes us with his self known, but when we cry out to God, he does hear our prayers. But if our prayers are self-serving and not bending a knee to his kingship. I think we have to question uh, just how uh, just how often we come before the Lord.
0: I think so too. You know, it's a shame that God will wait. I'm sorry. Pardon me. That people will wait. Give me. Uh, yeah. Forgive me there. That people will wait till God has to push them to the brink of disaster before they turn to Him. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Kevin Parvise, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Blessings on your day.
0: You too. On tomorrow's episode, we move into chapter six, and we hear how the Philistines returned the Ark of the Covenant to the Israelites with a guilt offering after suffering from those tumors we've been talking about. The Israelites then offered sacrifices to God, but some, again, improper worship, not following after God's will were struck dead for looking inside the ark. They then sent the ark to Kiriath-Jerim and turned away from false gods, at least for a little while, at Samuel's urging, gathering at Mizpah to seek God's forgiveness. We'll cover all that tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.